0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome, you can uh, find your seats as you greet one another. You actually, you'll see that what you just participated in in that greeting uh, is actually biblical. We'll look at that this morning. It's one of the verses I'm gonna use. And so when you get there, you'll understand, but we won't be there for a minute. So, uh, but glad you're here. Welcome to those who, this is your first time. Uh, If it is your first time, we are a church that preaches through books of the Bible. Right now, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the middle of a series, entitled, When All Has Been Hurt. And so um, the idea is, is that Solomon, who was one of the richest and wisest people ever to exist, and definitely the richest and wisest in the Old Testament, he actually had supernatural wisdom given to him by God. He wrote three books, Song of Solomon, which was a book all about passion um, and specifically marital passion. He wrote the second book, Proverbs, which is a song all about, or a psalm, and a book all about wisdom. And so the idea of, you know, what, what do we need to do to be wise? Because when you live with passion, pretty soon you run out, and you realize I need to do some wise things in my life because passion can't sustain me. And then he writes his third book, Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a book that basically can be summed up with Solomon saying, I've come to the end of my life and realize it's all meaningless. Like, it doesn't matter how much passion you have, it doesn't how much wisdom you live with, at the end of the day, when you come to the end of your life and you look at your life, the reality is, is it's all just fleeting. You're forgotten, and it's like, is there anything worth living for? And Solomon, having lived for everything, which we've looked at over the last several weeks, having tried everything, is coming to the end of his life and realizing how much he's messed things up, maybe you're there. You think about how you've messed things up, you're halfway through the semester and you're thinking, oh no, can I recover? I don't know. But Solomon is at the end of his life realizing this and he's now writing a warning to the people of God. He's telling them, look, everything that I've told you, even though everything you've heard, all the Old Testament Torah, the books I've written, the Psalms my father wrote, when everything's been heard. Solomon says, the conclusion of the matter I now realize in my old age is simple, and that is to fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. And this really is the message of the Bible. The message of from Genesis all the way to Revelation is this idea that there is a God who deserves our awe, our reverence, our fear, because that word fear there means awe or reverence. That, that we should look and say, man, if there is a God and he created all this and he created me, wow, number one, he's incredibly smart. He's, he's incredibly like beautiful and glorious from what I see. When you look at the mountains and the Grand Canyon and the sun that's out today and how the systems work together, you just go, wow, this is absolutely amazing. And then as a result of that, you ask yourself, so if there is a God, Who is he and what does he want me to do? And that's what it means, the Bible, to fear God and obey his commands. And God has given his commands to us. He's let us know how we're supposed to live. And just like the original two people he created, Adam and Eve, decided they wanted to be their own God, they didn't want to fear God anymore. They wanted to obey their own hearts and what they wanted, we do the same thing. And so Solomon is writing this book because he realizes he's done the same thing. He he says he believes in God, he says he fears God, but now he's looking back and he's realizing, actually, I haven't. I mean, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and God said not to do that. God said not to marry foreign women. Solomon married a bunch of foreign women so that he could keep the peace and keep the kingdom going and not have wars. He made compromise after compromise after compromise, and he realizes that now he's writing this final book and he's trying to warn the people of God you better change, you better take what I'm telling you to heart, because I'm explaining it to you clearly, and I realize that God explained it to me clearly, but I didn't take it to heart, and that's what we're looking at this morning, it's the idea that Solomon is coming, we're now at chapter 9, we've gone through 8 chapters, there's only 12 chapters, we're coming down to the end, and Solomon's realizing, he's like, look, you've got to take this to heart, and then you have to explain it to other people. It's not just enough for you to know this. It's not just enough for me to know this. Solomon says it's not just enough to realize this. You have to take it deeply in your heart. So it's not just, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. No, 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 no. You truly, from a heart and soul perspective, say, wow, if this is true, it means everything, which means I should be telling everyone. There should be no one I'm not telling if I'm truly taking these truths of who God is And the fear of him and the reverence of him and the awe of him and how wonderful he is and how good he's been to us to explain the world to us and give us his ways and commands to protect us. If I truly believe that, then man, I should take that to heart. Like I'm going to do that and then I'm going to use everything in my power to explain to other people that message. And that's what Solomon is looking at as we come down to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Before we go into chapter 9, remember from last week that we ended with Ecclesiastes 8. In Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon says this at the very end of the chapter. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the activity that is done on the earth, even though one's eyes do not close in sleep day or night, I observed all the work of God and I concluded that man is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. It's like, what is going on, right? And then he says, even though a man labors hard to explore it, he cannot find it. Even if the wise man claims to know it, if he's really honest, he's unable to discover it fully. And we know this to be true. You are, many of you are college students. Many of you have gone to college. you got a degree. You, remember how smart you used to think you were? Remember that? You know, when you were in your 20s? And how smart, and you'd figured everything out, and you kind of knew knew some stuff, and you're going to tell people, and you're going to make a difference, and you're going to change the world. And and now you're my age or older. (laughs) You're like, oh my gosh, I just hope I survive tomorrow, right? Like life has a way and Solomon is writing he's like look you have to take this to heart it's not wrong to explore wisdom it's not wrong to learn those are good things he goes but I'm telling you I applied my entire life to understanding wisdom to try to observe and figure things out and at the end of the day I'm writing this final book to tell you I'm clueless it's all futile and meaningless and I told you for so many years as your king that I was so wise and I knew it all and this is how it's supposed to all happen and I'm coming down I realize I did it all wrong. We have all these idols in, in Jerusalem that I allowed to be there. I have all these foreign wives that I should have never married. Like Solomon is wrestling with the reality of coming to the point where he looks and he's like, man, even though I've labored hard, I missed it all. I blew right by it. I missed it. Let me tell you, you can be there as well. And if you're young, you need to be careful because it's easy not to take Solomon's words to heart and to think, oh, well, I will be able to figure it out. I will be able to make it better. Or it's easy as a young person to get discouraged and say, well, if we can't figure it out, if it's all meaningless, if we're never gonna really truly know or discover the fullness, then forget it. I'm just gonna live for me and do what I want. That's exactly what Solomon did, and he's miserable now because he did it. So be careful. Be very, very careful. And that's exactly what Solomon is laying out. So in chapter 9, he says, indeed, after all this wisdom I've chased and trying to understand the world around me, indeed, I took all of this to heart. I took all that I've observed, all my wisdom, I took everything to heart and explained it all. He's like, I'm explaining it to you. I've explained it the last. Like, I've done my best to explain what I've seen and the reality. Listen, most of us try not to explain reality. We try to avoid it. And if you try to explain reality, you'll probably be labeled a pessimist really fast. Well, you're not very positive. Well, I'm positive you're going to die and I'm going to die. I know that's a bummer. That's pretty much all I'm positive about. I'm not positive about much else beyond that. I don't know how you're going to die. I don't know how I'm going to die. But I know nobody's getting out alive. Nobody wants to hear that. You don't want to start a conversation. Hello, my name's Matt. You're going to die. I'm going to die. How you doing today? Like, but that is the reality that Solomon is coming to at the end of his life. And he's looking and he's saying, look, I'm taking the reality of the world around me, the reality of God, the reality of my life to heart. And now I'm trying to explain to you how I got it wrong and how God has it right that you need to fear him and obey him. Because I don't have enough time to change this, so I'm writing my last will and testament so that hopefully you will change what I messed up. And the children of Israel don't. They don't change. The nation is split. The northern kingdom goes to Assyria. God allows the Assyrian army to destroy the northern kingdom, and they're almost slaughtered completely. Murdered. Because of their disobedience, because they didn't take these words to heart. The southern kingdom, instead of being humble, when they saw their brothers and sisters be destroyed, they got prideful. And they said, well, the reason we've got things so good is because we're doing it right. God's like, no. And he sends multiple prophets to say, no, I'm just a little more patient with you than I were with your brother and sister. Like, I'm, I'm coming, and discipline is coming, and I'm going to bring, like, if you don't repent... And they have like one or two times they repent in the history of the entire southern kingdom. Sure enough, the Babylonian Empire comes and lays siege to Jerusalem and destroys and slaughters the people of God. And they deserved it because they broke God's covenant. Because they weren't taking it to heart and explaining it to the world. They were just taking for themselves and telling the world to stick it. And we can be just as guilty if we're not careful. And Solomon is saying, look, the righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Let me explain to you about life. You can try to be right. You can actually accept Christ and be righteous before God. You can have the wisdom of the scriptures. You can work to obey God. But in the end, it's all in God's hands. You don't really have a lot of control. It's in his hands. Now the question is, do you want to entrust yourself to him in such a way that you say, I don't want to be a mess in your hands. I want to be a vessel that can be used in your hands. See, because it's all in God's hands. And it says, people don't know. You don't know whether to expect love or hate. You don't know what you're going to get today. I mean, you especially don't know that when you're driving around, right? You have no idea when you're driving if you're going to get love or hate from the drivers around you. Some of you may deserve a little more hate. No, I'm just kidding. Like, I don't know how good of a bad driver you are. But anyway, like, you realize this every day, that every day I'm like, man, am I going to be loved today? And see, the great part about God is God promises that he will love us, right? He's like, if you fear me and you, you obey me, then... You don't have to expect hate from me. You can expect love, but the problem is not your definition of love. God's definition of love. Because God's definition of love, sometimes we think he's hating us because he doesn't give us what we want. We act like two-year-olds. Right? Two-year-old grabs bleach out of the cabinet. They're playing with the bottle and dumping it around. You're like, give me that. They scream and cry. How dare you take? I was having fun with that bottle. You ruined my world. You're going to kill yourself with bleach. But I wanted it. And we can feel the same way as adults, and we're more nuanced now. We're not two years old dumping bleach on our head. No, no, no. We're we're a little bit different now. We've grown up, so we, we know how to kind of manipulate circumstances so it It's not that obvious, right, that we're killing ourselves, But we're doing exactly what is not good for us and what will kill us. And Solomon is like, look, you need to take this to heart. You have got to take to heart that you have to put your life in God's hands. Doesn't matter how righteous you think you are, how wise you think you are, you've got to put yourself in God's hands. You have to say, Lord, I'm yours whatever you want, because you're God and I'm not, and I surrender. That's what Solomon's saying. And he says, people don't know whether to expect love or hate because everything lies ahead of them. And God says, look, yes, everything lies ahead of you. And I am telling you the promise as we read about in the rest of the Bible that I will promise you my love, my compassion, my grace. But he also says, I can promise my hate if you don't submit to me, if you don't know me will be cast away, God says. So you have to take it to heart. Let me ask you do, you, do you have your works that you do because you trust God, or do the works you do based on the expectations of what you think you're going to get from God? See, there's, there's a difference between a relationship and a business contract. We've talked about this before. Most people, in the relationship with God, it's a business contract. You do, I do, I get. You get. It's not a relationship. A relationship is one where you just say, I give 100%. Whatever you give back doesn't matter because I'm committed. And that's what God did in his son, Jesus. And Solomon is realizing this. He's wrestling with these realities. He's wrestling with the futility of life. He's wrestling with all these things. And he just makes this statement. He goes on to say, everything is the same for everyone right? There's one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad. That means there is a good and there is a bad. For the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so it is for the sinner. As for the one who takes an oath, so for the one who fears an oath. In other words, you, I don't give my word because I don't want to break my word, or the person's always giving their word. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Remember the word under the sun. Every time Solomon says under the sun, he's talking about, he's observing just how the earth works. It's like Darwin. Darwin observed how the earth works. His application points are not biblical, right? But he observed survival of the fittest. Yeah, that's why we have nukes. The reason we have nukes is for survival of the fittest. Why else do you have nukes if you're not afraid of losing your army and losing your country? But since you have nukes, and since it's like the ultimate end-all be-all, that if we start launching these things, the world's over. All of a sudden, it's like everybody leaves each other alone. Does that make sense? Because it's like, look, under the sun, we'll kill each other to take what we want. We'll do it in friendships. We'll do it in marriage, and especially in the church. We'll do it in the church. We'll kill. We will take to get God to do whatever we want or whatever we think the church should do or whatever we think. Instead of looking and saying, what does God say? And he says, this is an evil. This is the evil. The evil is everything's the same for everybody. It's just just a big show all the time. Then he goes on. He says, there is one fate for everyone. In addition, The hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. If you don't think that evil is in your heart and madness is in your heart, you got a problem because it's there. And we'd love as a church to have a conversation with you about the evil in your heart and the madness that you chase. Not because we don't like you, but because we love you. Because the entire book of the Bible, or the entire Bible and all of its books is explaining and showing, that's what it does, explaining the hearts of mankind, their foolishness, and how they continue the madness of repeating the same things over and over again and expecting different results. You can read a book written 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago from the Bible, and be like, oh, that's just like today. Yep, because people's hearts don't change without God changing it, and they will act in madness and folly unless they give God authority in their life. And you know what's crazy about it? No one in the Bible thought they were wicked. No one in the Bible thought they were acting madly or foolishly. Well, Solomon didn't realize he was acting foolishly. He was the wisest man. He had supernatural wisdom. So obviously, anything I do is wise and good because I have authority. I've been made the king. I've been anointed by God. I've been given wisdom. I can write scripture. So obviously, everything I do is good. Finally, at the end of his life, Solomon realizes, oh no, I've used all of my abilities and my authority and everything I had to bring idolatry into the nation. I've used everything I've had not to be a servant and to lay down my life like my father David, but to just try to keep everything so I didn't lose it. And in the end, I realize, and he writes here, I'm going to lose everything. It's all going to be lost. And my people are going to lose everything. And God's people are going to lose everything. And so literally, you have this moment where Solomon's saying, look, like, do you see that your heart is full of evil? If you don't, can I just encourage you? Read the Bible. If you don't think your heart's full of evil, read the Bible. And if you read the Bible and you can't see your evil heart in it, you might want to have somebody else help you. Because when I read the scriptures, you see, everybody reads the scriptures and everybody wants to be the hero. And they don't realize that the hero of the Bible is who? Jesus, God, not you, not me. So when we read a story about David slaying Goliath, everybody wants to be David. You're not David. There's another pastor who said that a while back. You're not. You are not, you've not been anointed to be the next king. By the way, David, after he got anointed as king, what did he do? He went back to shepherding. He literally went back to herding sheep. Do you want to know why he showed up to be able to fight Goliath? Because he was the Jimmy John's guy delivering food to his brothers. Literally. He was an Uber. Like, he's just taking food. Uber Eats, here we go. Like, he, his dad said, hey, your brothers are doing something really important. They're fighting. Take some sandwiches to him and he takes the sandwiches to his brother. He shows up. He sees this Goliath defaming God. David so fears God and wants to obey God. He's looking around and like, are you guys just gonna let this happen? That's not us. We deliver the sandwich and we go back. Or, we once we're anointed king, we never go back to serve sheep because well I've been anointed, I'm important. I need to be on the battlefield. How dare I have to herd sheep and take sandwiches to my brother? They haven't been anointed king. See, the point of the story is to show us that we're the Sauls, we're the Israelites, we're Goliath, not David. And we don't read it that way. Why? Because we don't take it to heart how evil our hearts are. And we don't take it to heart how full of envy and strife and madness our hearts are. And then we don't explain that to other people. We tell them all they can be Davids. When we should be looking at them and saying, you're a Goliath, I'm a Goliath. You're a Saul, I'm a Saul. We're waiting for a David to come to save us because we're chicken, we're afraid, we won't stand up, we can't even feed ourselves, we got to have sandwiches delivered. That's the point of the story. That's what Solomon is discovering. And it should encourage you, because it should say, wow, God loves us enough to send a rescuer when we don't deserve to be rescued, to send us food when we're afraid. He gives us bad leaders for us to learn to be under and submit to, even though he has a plan, and I have to trust him. And we don't want it because we don't want to deal with what Solomon says to take to heart. So the real question is: when you look at this, and he says everything's the same for the good and the bad, you have to ask the question: Am I good or am I bad? Because that's how you decide in your evil of your heart. Like. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? A lot of times, that's the question we have. Well, should I do this? Shouldn't I? Is this good? Is it... And most of the time, we're like, well, it's not evil. Like, God didn't say I can't, like, punch my sister in the face. Like, I have nowhere in the Bible to say don't punch your sister in the face. I've looked. I've searched the scriptures. Nowhere does it say it. Instead of looking and saying, well, what is the heart of God? The heart of God was to take a beating, not to give one. But Christ is coming back to give a beating if we're not willing to take it before he comes back. You see, that's what this lays out. So what is good? Look at Romans. Paul writes in Romans, he says, look, all have turned away, all alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. You think you're doing good. If you're doing good and it's not about the awe and reverence of God for why you're doing it and it's not about obeying his simple commands of being a servant and laying down your life while you're doing it, then it's not good. You're doing it for evil purposes. That's what Solomon, Paul, Jesus, all of them said that. It's like, if if your heart for why you do what you do isn't for the glory of God, and I don't mean glory as in, like, I'm going to be so glorious. I'm going to to fight all of God's battles. No, I mean truly fearing God. And the way you know this most of the time and the way I know this in my life, it's this. How much time before I decided that I needed to do good did I spend praying about what is good? Or did I just run to doing good? How many people did I invite to pray for me as I'm trying to figure out what the good thing is to do? Or did I just get some advice I wanted off of YouTube and a couple pastors here or there, and then I just did it? Because if I truly fear God, I'm going to come before him, fall before him, and say, God, I think this is what you want me to do. I I want to do that. I think this is the good thing. I'm going to ask other people, I'm going to come to the body of Christ, that's what I'm going to do because I realize that if I don't do that, I'm going to be useless and I'm going to turn away and turn other people away from God. And a lot of times we think, well, that's what I don't want to do. I don't want to turn anybody away from God, so I'm just so nice and kind. Um, if people don't understand that and take to heart that they're going to die and spend eternity separated from him forever, then they're accepting a false gospel. So it looks good in the beginning. Do you realize right now 75% of young people growing up in evangelical churches are leaving the church every year and never coming back? 75% in the most recent statistics. That's awful. Why? Because we're not sharing. We're not getting them to take this to heart. We're not explaining them. We're just like, oh, Jesus loves you. It's so wonderful. And then they get out of the world and they have to actually deal with the stuff Solomon dealt with. They have to see death and mayhem and pointlessness and meaninglessness. And they go, Jesus doesn't fix things. It's just as big a mess as it's ever been. He doesn't make things. I still have cancer. This person still died. Jesus doesn't do what I want him to do. And you told me if I accepted Christ that he'd make things better. And it's not better. I'm sorry someone told you that. I'm sorry that was the gospel shared with you. Because Jesus does make things better. Just not yet necessarily. It's a promise. It's a future hope. Does he make us inside? Yeah, he can forgive us and as we have a relationship with him, he shows us how much better it is to do the things he asks us to do, to lay down our lives the way he asks us to lay down instead of chasing the things we want. So does Jesus make life better? Yes. But see, we love to talk about better and best, not good and bad. Because better and best keep us from what? Having to make a decision. Now, is it always black and white? No, there's a lot of gray in making decisions. That's why we have grace. It's why God forgives. It's because he's like, I know you're going to make mistakes. I know you're going to walk through this. And you can always come back to me and correct it and ask. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of sacrifice in the Old Testament. You can mess up and there's a way to come back and say, God, you're God. I'm sorry. My family's sorry. Hey, please be with us. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. Jesus is saying, look, you're always looking for the good thing in life. I'm good. God is good. That's where good starts at. So what does God say? Listen, if you're trying to figure out what to do with your life, do you, have you even read through the Bible? Do you, do you even want to know what the Bible says? The reason we preach through the scriptures all the time, book after book, is because I want people to believe the word, not me. I want you to go back and check it. I want you to believe what God says. It's not, here's five points for a better life. Sorry, I don't have that. It may get worse for you after one of my sermons. I don't know. I don't want it to be. But he says, look, no one is good but one, and that's God. And Solomon said, fear God and obey his commands. See, if you understand that it's about fearing God and obeying his commands, then you already have what's good. You're not looking for anything else. Because you have it all. If you fear God and have God and have his commands, it doesn't matter what happens to you because I have it all. There's nothing else I need. Look at what 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth that was struggling terribly. And he says, look, everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. You see, under the gospel and a relationship and a covenant with God, God's like, I'll forgive you. It's permissible for you to do all these things, you know, and you call it good. Well, obviously, God let me do it, so it must be good. No, 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 no. God permitted you to do it. That doesn't mean it was good or beneficial. And then he says, look, everything is permissible, but not everything builds and again, we take that verse and we say, yeah, that's why he's just so positive. And I just want to build everybody up. Have you read the prophets? The prophets are the most not positive people you can read in the Bible. It's why we don't like to preach from the Old Testament. It's like we don't like to preach from the prophets. Because it's hard to spin their words because they're just brutal. The prophets just lay it out and say, here it is. And we're supposed to do the same. We're supposed to take the reality of our world, take the reality of God, and then explain it to others. Look at what Paul says. He says, no one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. And again, we go, yeah, that's what I do. I I just want to be good to people. I just want to seek their good. Okay, but if if you're being good to them and you're not telling them about the eternity that awaits them and the hell that awaits them, then what good are you doing? There's a lot of Christian ministries running around doing good. And it's not good. They're just like paving the path to hell. For these people. And if, and if that person was to die tomorrow, they're going to wake up, face God's judgment and go, but your Christians never told me. And God's not going to respond, well, they, they didn't want to offend you. I'm not saying that we need to go out with pitchforks. And yet, that's not what I'm talking about. But we need to be honest with people about eternity. And about the hope we have in God, how we've taken Christ to heart and explained to them how our life has been changed. And believe it by the way we live our lives. Because listen, lost people can sniff it out, man. They can sniff out hypocrites so easy. They can read the Bible and then look at a Christian and go, that ain't what Jesus said. And then we have ways to spin it as well. But, you know, Jesus said this. This is what the scriptures say. What are you going to do with that? We need to wrestle with those things. And if we wrestle with them and we go before God and ask him, that's what a relationship is. A relationship is a struggle. Look at what John, when he's writing to the church and struggling with the church. John the Apostle is writing his third letter. He's written three. He writes and he says, I wrote something to the church. But Diostrophes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive us. I'm amazed at how many people want to have first place. And how few people want to be last. Especially when Jesus said the first shall be last, and the last shall be. First, And John is writing, he's like, look, there's this guy, I've wrote numerous things to the church, I wrote something specific to the church, but he won't listen to it, and he's actually not even, he's telling other people not to, he won't receive us, because we've said something he doesn't like, that he doesn't think is good. He won't take it to heart, even though I've explained it. Look at what John says, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good, what God says is good, is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. If you're okay with doing evil, if you're okay with ignoring God's Word, ignoring His counselors who write to you, who love you, who He has sent to confront and help you, if you're okay with that, I am telling you, there is an evil in you that Solomon wrote about, that Paul wrote about, that Jesus wrote about, and that everybody in the Bible said is in you ready to come out at any moment. See, how we take to heart the words of others is really important, and Solomon realizes that, which is why he's writing these words. Then he says, look at this, however, here's the guy, Demetrius has a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. Why do you think Demetrius has a really good testimony? What do you think were the characteristics of Demetrius' life that gave him a really good testimony among everyone? Probably because Demetrius didn't care if he was first. He probably didn't care if he was up front. He probably didn't care if people knew who he was. He was just a servant. And he was sprinkling favor all the time with just being a simple servant and being obedient. And more and more people are like, oh, Demetrius, oh, Demetrius, oh, Demetrius, oh, yeah, I know Demetrius, Demetrius. Like, everybody's talking about Demetrius. Like, who is this guy? Never seen him. I've looked on the website. He's not on staff. Who's this Demetrius fellow? Goes on and it says, and we also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. How awesome to have a spiritual leader look at someone and say, man, their testimony is true. They've lived it out, they've taken it to heart, they can explain the God, they get it, they are surrendered. And if you don't have people that are encouraging you in that, and spiritual leaders that are telling you that, and people aren't seeing that in you, but instead they're excited about all the things you can do and how you're up front and how you're winning, you better be scared to death. Because you're probably not a Demetrius. You're the other guy. He goes on and says this. Solomon writes after he says there's an evil, and he says, but there is hope. For whoever is joined with all the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know that they will die. See, if we truly understand life and we understand Christianity, then we know that we could die at any moment, so we want to be ready. And we also recognize that we're just dogs. But see, most of us would rather be dead lions. Most of us would rather make a name for ourselves and be, oh, that guy was a lion. That guy's a lion. He's a lion. Nobody wants to be a scavenger. Can I just tell you, I'm a scavenger. I deserve nothing. I'm a dog before God. Dogs were unclean animals, scavengers of the day. Solomon's like, look, a dead lion's dead nothing but those who join themselves to the living and who actually gives life it's jesus if he recognizes he's just a dog that's way better if he understands that he's going to die but he's still going to live and even if he's just a scavenger and god gives him the scraps he's okay with that there's a story about this that Jesus clarifies in Matthew. It's one of the most offensive passages of Scripture that goes against our modern culture that you can find. It's in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. Just as a Canaanite woman, the Canaanites were the people that God were supposed to, in the Old Testament, they were supposed to either tell the Canaanites to leave or kill them all. Man, woman, and child, every animal. Slaughter everything. That was the Canaanites. The children of God didn't do that. Solomon didn't do that. that. They made treaties with all the Canaanites, and then the Canaanites gods corrupted them, and it was a huge mess, and that's why the whole show just fell apart, and God punished them, because they brought in the Canaanite gods, which God told them they would do, and they didn't offer the Canaanites two options. The Canaanites had two options. You can either run for your life And then eventually, as the empire expands, we catch up with you. So leave your land, leave everything, and run, or you're slaughtered. By the way, that's the gospel message. That's the message of the gospel. God is going to come back someday, and there's going to be no option for humanity. But he offers now an escape. And there's nothing here you're going to keep. You surrender it all. When they're approaching a Canaanite woman, this is someone that all of them recognize, we didn't do our job in getting rid of these Canaanites. That's why we need a Messiah. That's why we're under Roman rule. That's why we're in the mess we're in. And now this Canaanite woman comes, everybody in that room wants to kill him. Everyone. From that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. Jesus can't even get his own people to call him Lord, son of David. And this Canaanite woman is calling him Lord, son of David. There was another Canaanite woman in the Bible that Jesus was related to, named Rahab, who said, your Lord will be my Lord. I will surrender my rights, a prostitute in her city, and I will give everything up if you will save me and save my family Just like this Canaanite woman. Look at what Jesus does. He did not say a word to her. That's awkward. A woman's crying and screaming, and Jesus is ignoring her. There might have been some humor in that, right? That you look and go, "Huh, she's a Canaanite woman. That's why Jesus won't give her the time of day. That's the way we're supposed to treat those Canaanites. Watch what happens. So his disciples Approached him and urged him, send her away because she cries out after us. She's annoying us. They're not concerned about her salvation. They're not concerned about the fact that, hey, she called you Lord, son of David. Most of us don't even refer to you that way. We just say, hey, Jesus, because you're our best bud. He goes on and says, send her away. He replied, well, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In front of everyone, she's like, I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm here to make sure that the Israelites are given one final opportunity to surrender to God before it's opened up to all the Gentiles in all the world. But she came and knelt before him. Look at the response of this woman. This isn't how we approach Jesus. It's not how the disciples half the time approach Jesus and said, Lord, help me. I have no other way to be saved if you don't help me. That's what Solomon is trying to get his people to understand. Take this to heart, explain it to people. You have no hope if he doesn't help you. He answered Look at this. It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Call a woman a dog today and see how that goes for you. Post it on social media, publicly writing it down for ages to come to have the words and see how that goes for you. But see, here's the thing. Jesus is trying to get us all see just as Solomon said that we're all dogs. We think we're dead lions. We think we're heroes. We think we've done great things for God. You're You're just a barely surviving dog. This woman gets it. How would you respond if someone called you a dog? How would you respond if you're a Canaanite and this is what's going on? And What would your response be? Well, let me just tell you. If you tried everything else and your daughter or son was tormented and miserable and there was no other hope for you but God himself like Rahab on that wall, This would be your response too every day. But see, we get a little prideful. We don't take it to heart the reality of our situation. We don't explain this to people and so we don't have the heart of this woman. We have the heart of disciples that are get the annoying things out of my way. Look at this woman's response. Yes, Lord, she said. I, wait, so, so I ignored you. I told you that I was sent to Israel first, that I'm the bread of life, and so like the manna of the Old Testament, that's me. I, 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 like all these things, I've told you. Then I called you a dog, and her response to all of that as she's kneeling and weeping is, that is all true. You are Lord. Anything you say is true, so I'm in. Yes. And most of us get mad because God tells us no to a grade or no to a situation in our life, and we pitch a fit. This woman is ignored, she's belittled, and she still is like, I know there's no other one that can help me. I know you're God. Watch what happens. To so See, this was all a setup. This is what Jesus does all the time. Oh, i sorry. She says, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You're the master. And if you'll just give me a crumb, it'll be enough. Just a crumb. I don't deserve to be with the Israelites. I don't deserve the manna in the wilderness. I don't deserve any of that because I've taken it to heart. I've evaluated my life and I'm a Canaanite. I'm a mess. I get it all, but, but I just believe because I've seen you explain it and I've seen things that are unexplainable and I have taken this to heart and I am telling you, Whatever you'll give me, I'll take Then Jesus replied to her, woman. That's actually a term of endearment there. That's not like a woman. That's a, oh, beautiful woman. Your faith is great. Now the disciples are like, what? Yeah, your faith is incredible. I've ignored you. My disciples have belittled you. I've... And you're like, just give me a crumb. Man, I wish more of us were that way with Jesus. I wish more of us were that way with God because that's what Solomon's trying to get them to see. And then he says, let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was cured. She wasn't looking for a cure anywhere else. She wasn't looking for anything else. She took to heart and said, you are Lord and Master. Ecclesiastes goes on and says, even though the living know that they'll die, but the dead don't know anything. Keep that in mind. When people are trying to teach you and they're not believers, keep in mind that they're talking a lot of dead stuff. It doesn't mean that they don't find nuggets of truth. Again, Darwin found a big nugget of truth. Darwin found out that men kill each other so they can survive over other men. Yep. God told us that a long time ago, that's Cain killing Abel, first story, like beginning of the book, that's exactly true, thank you Darwin, for discovering what God said thousands of years ago. His application was terrible, but he discovered a nugget, and then it says there's no longer a reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. See, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, you will be forgotten if you don't know God. You will be cast away, you will go to the abyss, and never to be known again. But if you are known by God, we looked at this a few weeks ago, He actually gives you a new name at the moment of salvation. And when you get to heaven, He has a stone with your name written on it. He has a name for you that only He knows that He's going to call you by in heaven. That's how intimate and personal our God is. He does not forget those who are his. He does not forget our name or the name he's given us. And then he says, their love, their hate, and their envy have already disappeared, and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. In other words, if they don't know God, if they're not among the living, they're in trouble. And then Solomon transitions, and this is a very controversial transition, let me tell you. There are scholars that debate what this next passage looks like. There's two ways you can go. Either Solomon is changing gears and he's talking to believers in the living or Solomon is talking to those who are dead. Either way, it's still kind of a similar message. Let's look at it. He says, go eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already accepted your works. Now, some people say because God has accepted the works, that means they've already surrendered to God. Maybe, or maybe it's like, I've accepted you've tried as hard as you can. Yep, I get it. Then he goes and he says, for God has already accepted, let your clothes be white all the time and never let oil be lacking on your head. Whenever you put on white and put oil on your head, it was because you were going to a special event in that day. It's because you were being cleaned up and being prepared. Now this is all a reference to a New Testament passage. Revelation says this in 3.16. He's talking to a church In Laodicea, and he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, hot or cold doesn't mean good or bad. You like cold drinks? You like hot drinks. Lukewarm? Right? That's what it means. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. He's talking to a church here. He's not writing to a bunch of non-believers. He is writing to a church, and he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you think you can be lukewarm and be good with me. Take this to heart. You can't be. Then he goes on. He says, because you say, this is what Solomon said. Remember all the verses we read before? I'm rich. I've become wealthy and I need nothing. And you don't know that you're a wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked like the Canaanite woman realized. Like Solomon was coming to the end of his life and realizing. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you may be truly rich like heavenly. And then he says, "White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Fear God and obey him." That's what it means to be committed and repent. You're just committed to fearing God. God's your God, I'm not. Your Lord, your master, I'm not. That's commitment and repent. And I'm not going to do that stuff anymore. I'm going to do what you say to do. It's the message of the Bible all the way through. And we get so caught up in all the work. Well, how many good works? You don't have to do any works. It's a free gift of salvation. But works follow. If you accept that great of a gift, you're going to be like, man, that was awesome. I want everybody else to know how great the gift I have is. And it's going to determine how you work. He goes on and says this. Enjoy life with a wife you love all the days of your fleeting life which has been given to you under the sun and all your fleeting days again is solomon writing this to lost people is he writing this to saved people to people who know god and fear god and obey or there's a debate there either way we should probably learn how to enjoy our wives and realize that our life is pretty fleeting and then he says for that is your portion in life and your struggle under the sun. Do you accept that that's your portion in struggle? Or do you complain to God because it's not working out the way you want? Because that's not accepting your portion in struggle. That's like Goldilocks. Too hot, too cold, just right. You're like Goldilocks and The Three Bears versus I, whatever porridge is put in front of me, I, I'll take. Whatever crumbs fall off the table. Then he says, look, Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your strength because there is no work planning knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. And there's the problem. In the Old Testament, Sheol is often referred to as the place where people go of darkness. But there's references in the Bible where Sheol just talks about a place where we go and you wait for God. It's where the Catholics get the idea of purgatory. Joel is a tough thing when you start to scholarly try to discover it. So either Solomon is writing to those who are perishing or he's writing to those who are dying and they don't know that there's a Messiah to save them. They don't know how they're going to be saved and they're like, God, I know someday you're going to save me, but you haven't saved us yet. So I know I'm just going to go into eternity. See, we don't have that mentality anymore. You want to know why? We have the New Testament. The New Testament says that when we die, we will go to be with Christ. There's no purgatory. There's no Sheol. It's gone. The reason I know that is because Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't think Jesus was lying. I don't think he was like, aha, I told you today. It's been a thousand years. Gotcha. Gotcha. April Fools, there's no real brunch happening. No, I'm just kidding. There is a brunch on April Fools. Okay. Like, this is so beautiful. He says, Look, you're not going to be, when you finally die, there's nothing left to pursue. You're going to have to stand before God. And whatever's done is done. And that's exactly what Solomon, like, take this to heart. Enjoy your life. If you know Christ, if you don't know Christ and you enjoy your life, you're just storing up problems. But if you know God and you're enjoying the life he's given you and you're obeying him, man, that's exactly Like the wife you have, give yourself to enjoy her. Bring enjoyment to her life. But that also means sometimes you got to stand up to her. Because why? God does discipline because he loves us. You see, marriage and work are the hardest part. Marriage and work. It's the thing that determines most of our life. Marriage and work. Am I going to be committed? Am I going to get up? Am I going to do stupid again today for a boss that doesn't care and a company that abuses my... Am I going to again... Yep, I am. Because God's going to use it. I don't know how he's going to use it. I don't know why I'm in Babylon. I don't know why I'm serving these dumb kings. But this is what God's called me to do, so I'm going to do it. And I just believe that if I do it and the next person doesn't... Because I'm supposed to work six days and rest one. That's what God said to do. That's what I'm going to do. Marriage. God tells me I need to be committed. He calls his marriage to his bride, the church, a covenant relationship. And so that's just what I'm going to do. When she treats me like dirt, when it's not working well, I'm still going to be committed to her. And the same on the other side. Why? Why? Because this is what we have to take to heart and our lives explain to people what we believe and our work and our relationships explain to people what we believe about works and relationships. And if you're working to get for you, I am telling you, the world sees that and goes, you're just like me. But if you're working to glorify God, the world looks at that and goes, I have no idea why you do what you do. If you're working in your marriage to get from your spouse, to get from your husband, to get from your wife, the world looks at it, yeah, that's what I do too. If you're just giving, when they're not giving, the world looks at you like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You should leave them. You should do this. You should do that. Like they want to draw you in to taking their advice to heart instead of God's advice to heart. So be very, very careful. Here's what Paul says this is the verse I told you earlier when you're greeting one another. He says, for what makes everything clear? Is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, rise from the dead. See, Solomon was saying you're dead. Guess what? There's a resurrection. And then he says, and the Messiah will shine on you. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. We did that. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I heard some of you giving thanks. Good to see you. Like, yeah, give thanks. And then he says, look, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Did he have to put that in there? I mean, we're doing so well. We're singing, you know, we're all happy. We're just giving thanks and submit to one another. it's why, you know, when the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's so hard. Because God knows our heart and he's like, you've got to take this to heart. The only way you prove what you were singing for, the only way you prove if you know God's will, the only way you prove your heart is how you submit. It's the only way. Because the world's constantly trying to be like Diophyses, who tried to get to the top and be the most important, and nobody wants to be Demetrius. Goes on, and says this. For what makes, oops, sorry. I have observed that this also is wisdom under the sun, and it is significant to me. So, what is Solomon observing that is so significant to him? Look at this. There was a small city with a few men in it. A great king came against it to surround it, and built large siege works against it. Those are big ramps to try to get over the walls, okay? Now, a poor wise man was found in the city. A poor wise man. We in our culture don't think those go together. Because if you're wise, you won't be poor. So why is he a poor wise man? maybe because he has given everything away because he's so wise that there's nothing I can keep. Then he goes on and he says, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Wow. Yet no one remembered that poor man. (laughs) The king got all the credit. The leaders got all the credit. That's the gospel. You are a poor, maybe wise man and Jesus is going to get all the credit. Quit trying to get some. And you will not be remembered by the world, but you will re- be remembered by God. And then Solomon says, and I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. And his words are not heeded. One passage I forgot is Ecclesiastes 9 11. I'm going to back up and grab this. Solomon says, Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For man certainly does not know his time, like a fish caught in a cruel net, like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. You and I are trapped. I was singing this morning to Ben, a little bit of Elvis, because we are having a conversation about something, and it's a trap, the word trap came up, and I'm like, I'm caught in a trap, you can't get out. Like, I'm going through this Elvis song in my head, and Ben's just shaking his head like, just go clean. Like, this is great. Like... We are caught in a trap. Do you take that to heart? Do you realize that? That you're going to die? We're all, like everyone around you is going, they're caught in a trap and they need someone to set them free. And you know who they need to set them free? They just need some poor man. They just need some poor sap to come help them. A poor sap who understands and takes to heart who God is and can explain to them what true wisdom really is to save their rear ends. But you know, this is what we do to poor men. Isaiah 53.1 is about Jesus. It's one of the greatest passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah and about Jesus. And it's the one that when he came, everyone ignored. Who has believed what we have heard? Canaanite woman did. And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? How do we know what's good and bad and who's wise and not? What do we take to heart? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. We didn't value him. See, that's Jesus. When he came, that's the way he was treated. And we kind of do the same thing. Because when he doesn't give us what we value, we tend to be like, yeah, we're not listening to you. You poor man who was crucified. Verse four, yet even though that's the way we treated him, even though that's the way we thought about him, yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. Let me ask you, how do you see Jesus? Do you understand that even though these things are true, that Solomon's trying to understand, he's realizing these things are true about him, he realizes all this stuff, he's trying to get the people to say, man, we've been rich, we've been chasing all this stuff, and we are so wrong. we, we got to change. Most of us despise Jesus because he doesn't look too impressive. He's like the poor man. We love to put the theostrophes up, Right? Look at that guy, portent. And the Demetriuses are just serving faithfully and they're ignored. See, so Jesus came and he just served faithfully. He never visited a major Roman city. Just stayed in Judea, the armpit of the Roman Empire. They actually put Herod in charge of Judea. Why? He was literally nuts. He literally, most likely had syphilis and was losing his mind. And they put him in charge of it. That's how little they thought of God's people. And yet Jesus came and he bore our sickness and carried it. Now let me ask you, how will you in turn regard and take to heart what Jesus did for you? And how are you going to explain that to other people? Because if you do what Solomon did, which was to take to heart what God had given him and then use it all for his glory and his wealth and his prestige, you are going to come to the end of your life as miserable as Solomon. But if you understand that Jesus came like this, And it's okay to be rejected and not be impressive and just be a simple poor man with wisdom who can help others. And when the time arises and it's your time, you can give a bit of wisdom to save someone and save some issues. Man, take that to heart. And then give your testimony like Demetrius of faithfulness and the testimony of this Canaanite woman of her faithfulness. God has testimonies he wants to give through you so that you can take to heart who he is and others can take to heart who he is. That's what Solomon's trying to get to in Ecclesiastes. After everything's been heard, the conclusion is, do you fear God and do you want to obey him because you are just so in awe of him and all he's done for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you... Leave us without excuse that you took the wealthiest, wisest man in the world and showed us that there's nothing that we have to offer if it's not from you. So I thank you for these words from Solomon. I thank you that we can take this to heart. Thank you that I was able to explain this to the people this morning, that I got to talk about you, how beautiful and wonderful and glorious you are, and how desperate we are for you and that there is hope after death would help us to take these things to heart and live differently lord if there's anyone watching online or listening today and they realize that they've lived however old they are a life like solomon i pray today would be the day that they surrender and lord i pray that they would be like that canaanite woman and they would take to heart the reality of their circumstances and cry out to you and say i'll take the crumbs i'll take whatever you give because you take mustard seed faith, and you multiply it to be something great. And so, Lord, I pray that if anyone here needs to surrender you with whatever little faith they have, that they would just say, Lord, you are Lord. You are the one who came to save me and bore my sins. Please forgive me. I surrender to you. Lord, if they really mean that, and they say that, then you say that you will come into them, and you will help them with the rest of the process of sanctification to become more like you, and that you give us a body, a church, to help us to do the same. So, Lord, thank you, and for those of us who are believers, I pray that we would take these words to heart today, that we would smile at how patient you are with us, that we would rejoice and sing songs because of how good you are, and Lord, we'd also take to heart how much further we have to go. But Lord, we thank you that you provided the way. In your name.